Now is the time and wherever you are is the place. The Citadel makes it easier to earn your degree by offering master's degrees, graduate certificates, and undergraduate degree completion programs that are entirely online. Flexible scheduling makes these programs convenient for working professionals. Online classes are held to the same high standards that consistently name the Citadel the number one master's granting public college in the South. The Citadel. Online. On your time. Visit citadel.edu slash online. Everybody, I'll take it. KFI AM 640, more stimulating talk. This is the Gary and Shannon Show. I'm Mo Kelly in for Gary and Shannon. That's the most beautiful aspect of music. It can bring about the most powerful emotions inside of us. I say it's the closest thing we have to a time machine, taking us back to exactly who we were, at that moment, when we love that song or even hated that song, even the songs we don't like still have that strong connection and powerful connection to a time in our life which we may have forgotten about altogether. That takes me right back to when I was maybe a teenager trying to find my way in life. And even as a teenager, I was very, very actively involved in studying politics. I remember sitting around the TV with the rest of my family and watch both the Democratic National Convention and the Republican National Convention and talking about the different platforms. I had no idea that I would actually be talking about it on the radio some 30 years later. But even back then, the whole political process was amazing to me, the complexity and also simplicity of it complexity in terms of how we determine our eventual presidential candidates, the histories of the parties. Because back then in the 70s, we really did not have primaries in the way that we do today. Back in the 70s, not every state had a primary. It wasn't until maybe 1976 or so did both parties have primaries in all 50 states. Not everyone remembers that. How did they do that then? It's, like was, they just like handpicked a few states? Handpicked a few states. People forget Republican Party, Democratic Party, and even uh, the Green Party and also Peace and Freedom. These are all private organizations. Think of it more as like a marketing study, uh, a focus group where they take a sampling and they say, I wonder what's on people's minds as far as a preferential candidate. And they will do a sample. It's not to be confused with like a public election, which is run by the secretary of state and the state more broadly. These are private organizations. So they don't have to have a primary in all 50 states. They've eventually gotten to the point where they've chosen to. And that was a very important distinction where I think people could not understand what happened, especially in the Democratic Party, in terms of Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders. Think of it like this, and I've said this on the radio before, and you've heard it before, just bear with me. Let's say the Democratic Party was McDonald's. And they do a focus group, a study, wondering if people would be open to the idea of purchasing hot dogs from McDonald's. And they go from state to state, and they have different polls. They have you vote. And at the end of the day, hot dogs came back as the most popular food item for McDonald's to sell. 
but they were only asking your opinion because McDonald's, the corporation, the private comp- uh, the, the private entity, they still have the final say. And to link this to uh, Hillary and Bernie, at the end of the day, Bernie could have won every primary, got every vote, and still the Democratic Party could say, thank you very much, we, the corporation, we're in the business of selling hamburgers, and Hillary Clinton is our nominee. Give you another example. In the, in the way that the Democratic Party could have done that with Hillary, that's how Gary Johnson can be the official nominee of whatever party, and Jill Stein can be a part, uh, the, the nominee of the Green Party after a weekend meeting or a convention at a hotel. As private entities, they can select their presidential candidates however they want. It so happens that the parties can ask you and me for input. But they get to decide how those primaries work. That's why you can have the Democratic Party say, well, we don't want to have an open primary. We don't want to have independents. We don't want to have Republicans having a say in who we may choose to be our presidential nominee as opposed to an actual election, a public election where, no, you can vote in any election and you can vote for whomever you want. That's really interesting. I did not know that. It's sort of like the Olympics. Yeah, yeah. Because like with the figure skaters, they had the top three finishers, Mm -hmm. but they didn't all go to the Olympics. They took the fourth place finisher instead because the the Olympic people (laughs) have the right to do that. It's their decision. But with all that in mind, Amy King... As young people tying this into being less innocent and more active and aware, not only in a worldly sense, but a political sense, it seems that, especially here in California, teens more and more are pre-registering to vote, but not choosing a political preference. They're not choosing to be a Democrat or a Republican. They're just declining to state. In other words, they're registering to become independents. And me, honestly, that's the way it should be. Mm -hmm. I believe the whole idea of a political party is not only antiquated, but it's counterintuitive to how a democracy should work. One person, one vote. And we can get into the Electoral College in terms of the weight of votes relative to state to state. but, But that's a different discussion for a different day. But California teens... 16 and 17-year-olds, if you didn't know, they could pre-register to vote as they've changed the law in anticipation of when they turn 18 and can start voting. And I'm quite sure the political parties thought, well, this is a good opportunity to start marketing, going back to the business aspect, marketing ourselves to these future voters, the people who are protesting or the people who are organizing, but too young to vote you start getting them in this political process. Now, 88,700 teenagers have used this process during the first few months of of its existence, and most of them, it doesn't give an exact number, but let's say it's more than 44,350, since they say most, most of them declining to identify as either Republicans or Democrats. Now, whether they should change that Come 2020 or even 2018 in November, I don't know. But if anything, I'm for an independent conscience going in. I'm for a young person learning more about 
the civic duties of their elected leaders, learning more about what a mayor does, what a governor will do, and then learning about the specific people who are running for office, their platforms, the types of policies they support, and then making a decision relative to the individual as opposed to straight ticket voting because they are a quote-unquote Democrat or Republican. In a perfect world, that's what I want for America. Well, yeah, because you don't have to – I mean, I don't agree with some of the things for my political affiliation by any stretch of the of the, of the whatever. It's funny. People don't believe me when I say this, but I vote for Democrats and Republicans freely, and anyone who knows what a party is and what a party does, local politics is very different from national politics. Local party representatives – oftentimes are very different than the national agenda. In other words, the person who I may want for mayor may not be in the same party as the person I want for president because they're speaking to two different audiences, two different constituencies, and what I want here in quote-unquote Los Angeles may be different from what I want in terms of the national dialogue and this national discussion as far as where this country is being moved forward, jobs, economics, immigration, and so forth. Different questions that are being asked, different answers are being offered. This online sign-up system automatically registers these teenagers to vote on their 18th birthday as long as they're a U.S. citizen and California resident. I know what some of you are thinking. How do we know that these are legal voters? Yes, it verifies that. The largest block of the pre-registrations, almost 44%, were by teens who said they had no party preference. Preference, California's version of an unaffiliated or independent voter. That's me. I'm a decline to state. Those who wanted to be Republicans were especially few and far between, making up only 10.3% of pre-registrations. So in terms of strict analysis as far as the future of California, if you want to bring political parties into it, California is getting bluer. In terms of strict numbers, if you look at these pre-registrations, 37% of these teenagers selected the Democratic Party, which means in terms of the 2018 and 2020 elections, those who've chosen a party are heavily favoring Democrats, which has all sorts of ramifications in terms of your local leaders, your congressional representatives, and how that's going to play out in many ways. And if you're not a Democrat, that's not necessarily good news for you, but I'm not a fan of the two-party system. And people say we should do away with parties altogether. No, we just need stronger third and fourth options. We've had other parties for many years. It's just a function of they don't necessarily have any infrastructure because our political system is built on money. They don't have the political infrastructure to fund candidates on the local level and also the national level. And here's one of my major complaints with the Green Party, for example. People may be a fan of Jill Stein. I'm not one of them. But my problem with the Green Party is you only hear about them doing anything is when they select someone to run for president every four years. Now, if 
the Green Party were about the business of electing people on the lower levels and then moving up through the political structure, then, yes, you could have someone feasibly then run for president. But if you're not demonstrating that you can lead on a local level or even a a statewide level, then why would anyone entrust you with the, the, the possibility of becoming president of the United States? And more and more, I think, young people are learning civics. More and more people are better understanding the whole point of it all. And even today in my conversation with Amy King about the political parties, that's a conversation I've had with people now for years because they're still upset about what happened to Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton. And I said, you guys don't understand. The Democratic Party, as shady as it might have sounded, they can do whatever they want in terms of making sure that their presidential candidate that they're going to offer and put on that ballot is representative of their core ideals and beliefs. Bernie Sanders was, is, and will always be an independent. He may happen to caucus with the Democrats, but he's always been an independent. He was an interloper. He used the Democratic Party so he could get access to not only their voter rolls, but he would have fundraising behind him, and he would also be part of the Democratic debates and get the type of national exposure that he would not have received if he ran as an independent. He used the party, and the party used him. Yes, the party had no inclination to have Bernie Sanders represent the Democratic Party going into the election. And I know it hurts your heart to hear that, but it's only because you don't understand the process. It's the same process that gave you Jill Stein for the Green Party. You didn't vote for her. They didn't survey 50 states. That's just the way it is. But in response to that, and what really, really, really warms my heart is that especially in California, teenagers are pre-registering. They're getting involved. They're learning the system. They better understand that the parties are only in it for themselves and declining to further feed into that monster. They're declining to state a preference and more willing to be open to people who may be in either party, both parties, but they're more taking a step back and seeing where their personal interests lie as opposed to aligning themselves with a brand, and that's what it comes down to, a brand. The Democratic Party is a brand. Not a good-looking brand right about now, but it's still a brand. The Republican Party is a brand. And teenagers, I'm going to call them kids for right now, are very sensitive to the brands in which they wear. The designer labels, the shirts in which they wear, the shoes they buy, the products they put up that they endorse on Instagram, they are supremely and keenly aware in terms of whom they associate with, and what brands they're going to be associated with. And if anything, which has come out of this social media generation, is the understanding that whom you associate with is particularly important to one's identity. And kids don't want to go around saying that they're a Democrat. Kids don't want to go around saying, in a majority sense, if we just look at California, that they're a Republican. There are 
their identities are not tied necessarily to the political beliefs, beliefs and platform of one particular party. And for me, that's good because there needs to be a change in the way that we think as a nation. And hopefully they'll get this other part right, too, in terms of how they're going to treat people in the workforce and how they're going to treat people in politics. Let me give you these two stories real quick before we go to break. We know about the Me Too movement. We know how young people feel about the Me Too movement. But these individuals eventually who are in power right now, be it politics or the military or entertainment, who have been the lightning rod for the Me Too movement, young people are kind of figuring out that we've really messed up this country in many ways. A new Harris poll found that nearly one out of four, about 23% of men, grown folks who are the decision makers in many industries, including politics and corporate America, and the military, nearly one out of four men thought it was sometimes or always acceptable for an employer to expect sex from an employee. We're not talking about a workplace relationship between employees on the same level. We're talking about the power dynamic. One in four men thought it was sometimes or always acceptable for an employer to expect, not allow, but expect sex from an employee. The poll commissioned by the nonprofit humanitarian organization CARE was released, of course, yesterday on International Women's Day. It surveyed 9,400 adults in Australia, Ecuador, Egypt, India, South Africa, the U.S., U.K., and Vietnam. So, yes, it's broader than the U.S., but it's indicative of world views of women and for all the bluster about the United States being so forward thinking in its views on women, as opposed to maybe the middle East, we're really not that far ahead. We're really not. Sexual harassment at work. Isn't even illegal in nearly one third of the world. It's not illegal. So we're ahead in that regard, but we're behind in terms of identifying it. And acknowledging it, if you think only this year have we come to terms with its its prevalence and its pervasiveness in nature. I'll give you an example. California lawmaker who was nicknamed, is nicknamed Huggy Bear, and I'm not talking about Starsky and Hutch, has been told to stop hugging people. California state senator has been told to stop hugging people after an investigation concluded that his embraces made multiple female colleagues uncomfortable. Yes, he wasn't necessarily hugging everyone, just female employees. State Senator Bob Hertzberg's frequent hugs, he says, were not intended to be sexual, but more often than not, were unwelcome. He's a Democrat from L.A. He, he nicknamed, he was uh, given a nickname such as Hugsburg and Huggy Bear for greeting men and women alike with giant hugs. But I guess there was a favoritism in terms of the women who he was favoring with the hugs and made multiple women uncomfortable. And I have to wonder, I mean, I have friends and colleagues 
an occasional hug may be okay if you see them at a non-work event or if you haven't seen them in quite some time. But I think it would be somewhat odd if you're giving out daily hugs or frequent hugs to employees, be it members of the same sex or opposite sex. Okay, now I feel weird because I have been known to hug you in the hallways. Yes, but it's not like whenever we see each other, there's just a hug, and it's not something that you just do with everyone all the time. I mean, that is true. It, frequency, I'm very selective with my yeah, hugs. Yeah, frequency does matter. I mean, <laughs> and from what I see about Huggy Bear here, it's not like he has a, has a degree of rapport with everyone. There's not everyone that you can just go up to and hug, especially if there's a power dynamic. Let's not forget, when you have a superior giving subordinates hugs, well, it's kind of difficult to refuse oftentimes if you think that refusal may play out in a different way, which is negatively, or you may be somehow punished or held against you later on because you're not hugging the boss. If you and a coworker want to hug, I don't think that's a problem, provided both of you are willing participants. But when you have boss to employee, employer to employee, that's a different dynamic. That's a different set of expectations. That's a, that's a level of closeness that not all employees want to have with their employer. I tend to keep bosses at arm's length because it just makes it easier so there are no misunderstandings. And I've been the boss in many situations, and I try to stay away from hugs because I always want to, and I'm almost like Mike Pence on like this, I don't want there to be a misunderstanding. I don't want someone to feel uncomfortable around me. I don't want there to be a presumption that there might be something going on between a female subordinate and me. So it's easier for me to just keep everyone at arm's distance and not necessarily have to worry about that. No pun intended. (laughs) Or intended, however you want to look at it. But it is refreshing, taking this back to the beginning before we go to break, it's refreshing that young people have a different outlook in terms of what's appropriate in the workplace, in terms of how they approach their politics, the politics of the workplace. They're more independent thinkers. They're not buying into the brands. They're not buying into the status quo. They're willing to consider people on their merits. That's my read from this poll. They're willing to look at, even though it might have been okay in the past in terms of workplace behavior of sexual harassment that might have been okayed or people turned a blind eye to it in previous years they're not going to do that and if anything it says that for all my complaints about young people in social media there are some positives which may come out of them this is the gary and shannon show mo kelly in for gary and shannon kfi am640 more stimulating talk KFI AM640, more stimulating talk. It's the Gary and Shannon Show. I'm Mo Kelly in for Gary and Shannon. Yesterday, you heard me go all off on a whole bunch of tangents regarding the Trump administration slash the Department of Justice suing the state of California. But I'm not a lawyer, so I thought it'd be better today for at least a moment to talk to someone who can give us some legal insight on this case, what it may portend, and what may be the outcome. Joining me right now on the phone is Professor Jessica Levinson clinical professor of law for the Loyola Law School. 
Professor Levinson. I'm not calling you Jessica, but Professor Levinson, it's good to talk to you again. How are you? It's great to talk to you, and someday I hope to be such a regular that you do call me Jessica. (laughs) But it won't be today, Professor Levinson. Let's jump right in. Give us some background on this case from your legal expertise and what it might mean. Sure. So this case is a matchup between California and the federal government. And what we did in California, as your listeners know, is that we passed a series of laws, three laws. And we basically said to the federal government, look, we want to protect undocumented immigrants, and we don't want to help you out that much when it comes to enforcing immigration laws against undocumented immigrants. And the federal government looked at our laws and said, no, thank you. And there's this thing in the Constitution called a supremacy clause. So Jeff Sessions came to Sacramento and he said, you know what, California, we're suing you because when it comes to federal law versus state law, federal law wins. And Jeff Sessions is true except for some exceptions. So If federal law is in direct conflict with a state law, then the federal law wins based on the supremacy clause. But California's response, and they have a pretty good response here, is there's something called state sovereignty. And that means that all states, regardless of whether they're blue or red, have power to enforce their own laws and to protect the health and safety of those living within the state. So California will say there's a little thing called the Tenth Amendment, and that says that you, federal government, can't commandeer a state to be basically the local arm of your law enforcement, which is a really long way of saying this has become a political fight, but there are actually really interesting and good legal arguments on both sides. Five years ago, I'd say maybe two years ago, I would be more expectant of hearing conservatives and Republicans trying to argue states' rights, the Tenth Amendment. But now it seems like the roles have been reversed, have they not? Well, that's the irony of this, is that conservatives have long talked about the importance of state rights and the importance of the federal government not overreaching and respecting state sovereignty. But that was largely when states were imposing what I would view as more regressive policies, policies that were more harmful to, for instance, civil rights and minority rights. And so Now what we have is a state doing the reverse, a state being more protective of civil rights and minority rights, and the federal government is essentially saying, yeah, we're not into states' rights in this particular situation, but thank you so much. Let's drill down a bit. I know that the mayor of Oakland sent out an email last month warning of an impending ICE raid. Can it be argued, or in fact, I made the argument, that's not necessarily being protective of citizens or residents, as it were, but is actually working outside the law. Where does the law stand on that? Yeah, so you could certainly argue that. And of course, what Oakland Mayor Libby Schaaf did is separate from this lawsuit um, of the federal government suing California, but related in terms of it being related to immigration and ICE raids. And so, I mean... Mayor Schaaf definitely decided that it was within her prerogative to warn members of the immigrant community that the ICE raids were about to happen. Now, you know, whether or not it was outside the law, I would say I do not foresee that she will be prosecuted for something like federal obstruction of justice. I think that what she did is permissible, and I think that the real argument is whether or not we think it's wise. 
when I hear about the federal government suing a state or even vice versa, I wonder if the general lay community understands what is at stake. It's not necessarily for money. What does a winner or loser look like in the resolution of this case? Yeah, I mean, a, a winner, this is not about money. This is about state versus federal power. And so what a winner or loser will look like is um, – you know, if California quote unquote wins, then it will be a win for all states in terms of how far they can go in an area where the federal government has already implemented a policy. Oh, you're talking about and, precedent. This could be case precedent. So, and that's exactly where I wanted to go, which is I think it's really important for us to remember that this opinion is not going to begin. A judge is not going to say when you have a Republican in the White House and when you have Democrats running a state. The opinion is going to start by saying, here are the the boundaries of state versus federal power. So, you know, unfortunately, this case has divided us not along legal lines, but along party lines. So if you're a Democrat, you're in favor of what California is doing. And if you're a Republican, you like what the federal government's doing. But we really need to be clear that this case very likely will have precedential value. I think it will be appealed to the Ninth Circuit and then the Supreme Court. And this case will be good law when the reverse is true, when it's when and if it's a Democrat in the White House and a conservative state that is trying to assert itself in a particular area. I know you can't necessarily predict this, Professor Jessica Levinson, clinical professor of law at Loyola Law School, but... If you could give us the best guess as far as the timetable on something like this, at least the first ruling before it's kicked up to the other courts. Yeah, I mean, I, you're, you're right that it is very difficult to predict the timing. Um, obviously, the Trump administration has asked for a preliminary injunction, and that means that the court is going to look and see who's likely to succeed. I would expect to see a ruling on that within um, the next couple of at least months, but I don't think that, you know, to your listeners, I don't think we're looking at by next week we're going to get a ruling from the district court, the week after that, the Ninth Circuit. I think it will be slower than that, Um, in part because I'm not sure there are exigent, meaning emergency circumstances at issue. So just in time for midterms, you're saying? Um, Yes. Unfortunately, (laughs) I think that the legal decision could coincide with the election, um, when the election is. And we see this, you know, you and I have had this conversation a little bit with respect to when Robert Mueller is going to um, come to some conclusions and whether or not it will be timed with respect to the election. And we can have the same discussion with respect to Supreme Court decisions this term and even now this um, sanctuary state case. It's all politics you're saying. Great. Wonderful. No, actually, I'm saying I'm so depressed that it's all politics because this is a legal issue. And it's kind of like the filibuster, where if you're in the minority, you love the power that the filibuster gives you. And then all of a sudden, the parties flip and the majority hates the filibuster because it gives the minority power so much, the minority party so much power. And that's what we need to be careful about when we're really rooting for, if we're Democrats, an opinion that gives states more latitude, or if we're Republicans and we're really rooting for more federal power, because this case is actually kind of the mirror image of a case in which um, the Obama administration sued Arizona yes. for actually going, to, quote unquote, too far with respect to being um, more aggressive of implementing immigration laws. And so, 
you know, again, I would just say, I know that we will not do this. I know that it's basically pointless for me to utter this sentence, but I really hope we look at the legal issues and not the politics. Amen to that. She is Professor Jessica Levinson, clinical professor of law, Loyola Law School. Professor Levinson, I always enjoy our conversations on and off the air, and I so appreciate your expertise to be able to share this in a digestible way for people to understand. Let's do it again sometime soon. I would love that. Thank you. This is the Gary and Shannon Show. I'm Mo Kelly in for Gary and Shannon. KFI AM640, more stimulating talks. KFI AM640, more stimulating talk. This is the Gary and Shannon Show. Mo Kelly in for Gary and Shannon. If you're not familiar with me, I host the Mo Kelly Show here on KFI, Saturdays and Sundays from 6 to 8 p.m. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Mr. Mo Kelly, M-R-M-O-K-E-L-L-Y. You can check out my personal website, MrMoKelly.com, spelled the same. All right, I'm going to need your help on this one, Blake and Amy King. We're going to have to do an abridged version of this, but I found a list of the drunkest states in the nation. And since it's Friday and people are going to get lit tonight, who do you think is in the top 10 of the drunkest states in America, since we don't have time for all 50. Mm, Wisconsin. We just throwing them out, yeah? Yeah. Wisconsin, they're number two. Ooh. Very good. I'm going to throw in, uh, I guess we'll stay regional Minnesota. Minnesota is number six. Okay. Massachusetts. state party states. No. Massachusetts is not in the top 10. I was just hoping on Boston. But it's number 13. I was just hoping Boston would fuel that one. Boston. All right, I'm going to think of somewhere where I probably wouldn't want to live. Uh, oh, damn, that's so messed up. <laughs> North Dakota. Number one. Wow. <laughs> well, you stole my thunder there. Sorry. <laughs> Michigan. Well, Michigan is on the list. It is number 10. And the way they put this list together, it had to do with uh, adults drinking excessively alcohol-related driving deaths, adults in fair or poor health, and drunkest metro area within the state. Alaska up there? Alaska's number three. Cold weather usually means people will drink or just being isolated. Well, yeah. I mean, you can't go, you know, here, you can go out hiking. There, you're stuck inside for nine months of the year. But to push back against that, number eight is... Hawaii. No. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Is that is that based on residents or is it based on consumption? Because like in Hawaii, everybody's vacationing, so they're drinking Mai Tais. Some 20.5% of the adult population in Hawaii drinks to excess, hmm. well above the comparable national share of 18%. So I guess they're looking at as people who are actually residents. And drinking excessively... Uh, is termed as men having more than 15 drinks in a week and women more than seven drinks in a week. How come we only get seven? I guess you all can't hold your liquor. That, I guess that's it. Okay. I mean, I, yes, I know the science, you weigh less than us, and so alcohol is going to disproportionately affect women more so than men as far as a body mass index and average weight, yada, 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 blah, blah, blah. Well, for gender equality, I just don't think that's fair. 
Well, would you like to have 15 drinks with, with your male counterparts? <laughs> no, because I'd be on my lips. That's a no? Are you sure? Are you sure, Amy King? Is there a side of you I just don't know? Yes. Okay. Well, being from Oregon, what was Oregon yeah, like? Yeah, what's Oregon? I have to find it, but it's not in the top 20. Oh, excuse me. Yes, it is. Number 16. So just barely. What's just California? 22. Huh. See? Because we have things we can do here. Yeah, and there's a lot of state and there are a lot of people. I mean, you That's can- true. San Francisco is not like L.A. San Diego is not like San Francisco. I mean, we don't have, I would say, a unified state ethos or environment or experience on any level. But we're 22. I mean, I guess that's one thing good about California. I know. I was going to say, you know what? Our quality of life sucks, but we don't drink too much. Yeah. You know, and I, and I saw that report, and I'm okay with living in California. I'm born and raised here. I hate the traffic. But I would not trade California for any other state. And I've been to maybe 32, I think, of the 50. Uh, I'm pretty good with California. Now, as I get older, I become less of a city guy and more of a rural guy or a suburban guy because, you know, I want less drama as opposed to more drama. But I like the city feel of L.A. And if they could ever get the traffic straight, I'd be all good with California. Well, good luck on that since there's no money going to the roads. Well, and even if they did have money going to the roads, they'd probably misapply it, and, you know, misappropriate it. You mean like gas tax money that's supposed to be going to the roads? That too. That too. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. We, we won't get into that right now. But not today. Not, not today. today. Not today. Oh, but there is something very important that I want to give to you today. I have a gift to you. I come bearing gifts. Let's just say hypothetically you wanted to go to the iHeartRadio Music Awards. Well, here's a chance for you to win a pair of tickets to the awards themselves. It's the award show you can control. Our 20th 2018 iHeartRadio Music Awards is Sunday, March 11th at the Forum here in L.A. with performances from Bon Jovi, Ed Sheeran, Maroon 5, Charlie Puth, Cardi B, an Innovator Award honoree Chance the Rapper, is hosted by DJ Khaled and Haley Baldwin, the only award show in the world that celebrates your love of music. If you would like to go, you and a guest, you know what? We have tickets for you now. Caller 6, give us a call at 800-520-1KFI, 800-520-1534. If you and a guest would like to go to the iHeartRadio Music Awards this Sunday at the Forum, in Los Angeles, give us a call, 800-520-1KFI, 800-520-1534. This is the Gary and Shannon Show. Mo Kelly in for Gary and Shannon. More stimulating talk. Home, where families connect and memories are made. Find your new home with PenFed, a mortgage partner who brings confidence and value to your home buying experience. They offer low rates and no lender fees and can even help you find a real estate agent through their trusted partners. Let PenFed bring you home. Visit PenFed.org slash home or call 1-800-970-7766. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed, insured by NCUA, equal housing lender. 